This morning we're going to be reading John chapter 18, right where we left off last year. John chapter 18, from verse 12 down to verse 27. I've got the text up here on the screen. This is from the NIV. When people are speaking, I've changed the color of the text if you're wondering why it might look a bit weird. And this morning, one really cool thing that we're going to have a look at just for a moment is how different translations of the Bible work. That will come up as, as we look at this. But in the story, remember the narrative that we've been given. Jesus has just been arrested. Last thing we chatted about was the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus speaks and people fall over, and it's just this extraordinary moment. So let's read here, going on, uh, verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, I'll just caution you, because it'll make sense in a moment, but everything we're about to read here actually goes on at the high priests. They have actually moved from where Annas was, the father-in-law, to where Caiaphas Caiaphas is, so that the trial can happen, but the fact that they've moved is not mentioned till later. Verse 14, Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple, which we're quite sure is John because he doesn't like mentioning his own name, and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. This is yet one more piece that suggests to us that John was from an influential and probably wealthy family. Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty and brought Peter in. In other words, John has come back and said to the servant girl, he's with me. And she knows who who John is, but she doesn't know who Peter is. She says here, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Because she knows John, but she doesn't know Peter. She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It's fascinating. I am not. It's the opposite of what Jesus says about himself. Jesus says, I am. Peter says, I am not. Verse 18, it was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire which they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. That's part one of this episode that we're given. Part two is this. Meanwhile, indoors, meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth Why did you strike me? Fascinating moment. It's a bit strange. Why include this? Verse 24, Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. 
Let's pause for a moment. If you have a translation other than the NIV, you might be missing a word here. There's a laser pointer work. There we go. And the word is then. As we read this text in the New International Version, which is an English translation from your Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic scriptures, those of you who read Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, which I think might only be dick. (laughs) The word then in English is a causal term. It is a chronological term, suggesting that Annas is actually sending Jesus bound to Caiaphas after all this has already happened. That's not the case. The text, as it's actually written, basically says, almost at this point, it's a by-the-way kind of statement. By the way, Annas had sent Jesus to Caiaphas. The word then, as a chronological statement of events, does not occur in the original language. It literally says, Annas sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas the high priest. If we go back here uh, to around about verse 14, or verse 13, brought him to Annas, who was first the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Most Bible scholars will say that this other comment about Jesus then being bound and sent to Caiaphas should occur after verse 13. But the author, when they were looking back through the text they had written, said, oh, I didn't make that clear. I'll write that down here. It's actually really cool. If you were faking this document, you wouldn't have made a mistake like that. It's just nice in one way to go, oh, John got carried away with the story and then went, oh, 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 I need to clarify something. And he puts the phrase in, in a place that actually makes it a little bit awkward. And has sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. That's referring to something which has already happened. If anyone else thought that maybe that Annas was already a high priest and Caiaphas was another high priest. That was episode two. Episode three is this. Meanwhile, again, that same term, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. That's denial number two. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, that's quite specific, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Specific observation. Again, a third time, Peter denied it. And at that moment, Specific observation, at that moment, a rooster began to crow. What an extraordinary passage of scripture we have this morning. There are two things that are happening at the same time here. One is Jesus is being questioned, and the other is Peter is busy denying Jesus. And both these things are happening simultaneously. And this morning, rather than putting ourselves in the position of Peter, who has denied Jesus and thinking about that or trying to put ourselves in the position of someone who has been betrayed, let's actually put ourselves in the position of John the author because John is the one who has recorded this for your benefit and for mine. John deliberately stitches these two things together. He interrupts the story of Peter's denial with what was specifically happening with Jesus at the same time. And we have these two different pieces that we're going to talk about just for a couple minutes. The first piece is what's going on with Jesus. Because Jesus is perfect. And if you hear nothing else this morning, please hear this. I want you to see Jesus more clearly out of this passage of Scripture. Have a look 
at what is going on here. The eternal, uncreated, enfleshed Son of God turns up and he is at the high priest's place of residence, probably in his yard where the other officials have been gathered together to put him on trial. The Son of God is being called to account by human beings and foremost among them, his chief representative, the high priest, the person who is supposed to be on the ball, and Jesus is called to account. Jesus is on trial here, and have a look at this. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus does not immediately start giving them a lesson going back to Moses and the prophets. We find him doing that after the resurrection with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, but here he lights up. He speaks directly to the high priest and to those who are present about their behavior and their conduct in that moment. I have spoken openly to the world. Jesus is on trial by night in secret. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Imagine those words just for a moment coming out of his mouth in the presence of all of these religious officials who have secretly conspired to kill him. Jesus is commentating on their behavior, on their values, on what's going on in their own hearts. Why question me? Why question me? If they were really interested in hearing about Jesus' teaching, they would not be doing this. He is calling them on their motives. They're not interested in his teaching at all. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. This is the first recorded moment of Jesus being physically assaulted on his path towards crucifixion. And where does it come from? It comes from the servant of the high priest who is stepping in because this man... This high priest, this human being, is not to be questioned by the Son of God. Just let that sink in for a moment. Here is a human being who considers themselves beyond question that their servant strikes the Most High God across the face. And how does Jesus respond? If I said something wrong... Jesus replied, because Jesus says stuff wrong all the time. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? This is extraordinary. Right here in this moment, John paints us a picture. This is where the degradation and the shaming and the humiliation of Jesus really begins to open up from his own people. They'd schemed against him up till here. They'd gone and they'd arrested him in the garden. But here, openly, Jesus gets struck across the face. And in that moment, what is Peter doing? Piece number two. Piece number one is the perfection of Christ. Piece number two is this. Peter. What is Peter doing while this is going on? Some artist interpretations. 
It's interesting, depending on which country your artist comes from, the soldiers look really Spanish or look really Roman or, or look like the soldiers of that country. Peter is busy failing. Peter is busy denying Christ. When Jesus is saying, this is who I am, Peter is saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. When Jesus is showing his content, when Jesus is showing his, his character and his strength, Peter is showing his weakness and his frailty. We read earlier on this morning about the disciples who sat around the table. This trial happens straight after Jesus gets taken from Gethsemane. Gethsemane happens straight after that last supper that we read about. Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him. That's why at the last supper, Jesus not only said, one of you is going to betray me, but when Peter arcs up, Peter says, everyone else might fall away, but I will never fall away. I've got the reference here for those of you that want that, by the way. 1337 in John's Gospel, and then in Matthew 26, verses 33 to 35, Peter says, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Peter's words were not true. Peter didn't follow through. He failed. He said that he would be standing head and shoulders above all the others, but he didn't. He failed. And the point of this morning is simply this. Jesus already knew that that was going to happen. When Jesus took Peter and John aside in the garden and said, pray with me, he'd already told Peter that Peter was going to fail. He already knew Peter was going to fail. And yet Jesus not only takes them aside to pray, but just before that, he sits and he shares a meal with them around a table. He literally shares a cup with them. He takes his own bread and he breaks it and he shares it out amongst them. Jesus loves this failure. I don't think he loves that he failed, but he loves Peter. Jesus knew that he was going to screw up and yet Jesus loved him. Really simple point this morning. When Jesus chose to love Peter, all of Peter's screw-ups in terms of denying Christ were in the future. Jesus already knew that that was going to happen and Jesus chose to love him regardless of how much Jesus knew he was about to fail. Jesus' love for Peter was not performance-based. And this morning, I want to say very simply, Jesus' love for us, for you, is not performance-based. When Jesus chose to love you, all of your sin was in the future. You hadn't committed it yet. He chose to love you already. Peter's sin did not overwhelm the love of Jesus, where Jesus changed his mind and started hating Peter. That did not happen. When you screw up, when I sin, Jesus does not stop loving us. Someone said to me once that what we find in the writings of the Apostle Paul is that he so preaches the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that people turn it into license because they lack understanding. 
But they said if you preach the grace of Christ properly, people will eventually get the right, the wrong idea and enter into license and you need to rein them back in from that. So let me preach the grace of Christ really strongly this morning, knowing that it might get messed up in the process. You can't outsin the grace of Christ. You cannot outsin the power of the blood of Jesus. Peter could not. And God's love for you is not performance-based. He doesn't love you because somehow you're less sinful than someone else. He loves you because he loves you. He loves Peter because he loves Peter. That's how much he loves you. His love for you does not anchor on a monthly or weekly or, or yearly performance review. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And because he loves Peter, he interacts with Peter, knowing that Peter is going to fail, knowing that Peter will not follow through, knowing that a, a really poignant, important, key stone moment is going to happen. And in the moment of need, Peter's frailty will turn up, not his strength. And maybe sometimes we feel like there has been a moment or moments or times where we go, Lord, that was a real sort of key moment and I fumbled it. I messed it up. Lord, there was something I was supposed to say. Or Lord, I was supposed to keep my mouth shut. Or Lord, I was supposed to, to help that person and I messed it up. Jesus loves you. His love for you is not subject to performance review on your part. You cannot outscrew up the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's explain for a moment how this does work. Peter would eventually, we read about it in, in Acts, Peter would eventually, when the Holy Spirit comes on him in power, become one of the boldest, bravest, most extraordinary weapons in the hands of God that we have ever seen, that we have any record of in Scripture. The transformation of Peter happens because Jesus' sin has paid for, Jesus' blood has paid for Peter's sin. The love of God happens first. Because of the love of God, Jesus comes as a sacrifice so that when he loves you, your sin may not harm God's own perfection. God has to deal with sin, and he deals with sin because he already loves us. His love comes first, and then the sacrifice for sin happens because of his love. It is an outcome of his love. He loves first, and then he saves us. And because the blood of Christ covers your sin, the Spirit of God can come into you and rest on you and be at work in you. And then transformation happens. We sang the words this morning, you tore the veil, you made a way. Before Jesus turns up, the, the reverse order happened. If you wanted to know that God loved you, you transform yourself first. You clean yourself up, and then after you clean yourself up, you go into the presence of God and offer your sacrifice, and then you can have a relationship with God. That's why there was a veil in the temple to separate the presence of God from those of us who were outside. And only special people got to go in, and they had to put blood on their earlobes. They had to wear special robes made of 
a particular kind of linen. There was all of these rules and regulations. And Jesus, when he dies, tears the veil. Let us understand the order of things this morning. You no longer have to clean yourself up to go into the presence of God. You go into the presence of God and God cleans you up. Transformation comes from being saved by Christ. So what do we do with these pieces this morning? We have the perfection of Jesus and we have the humanity of Peter. Again, just some really simple points for us to take home and to actually sit with this week. Jesus loved Peter, even though in this moment, Peter sins against Christ in a very, very disastrous way. Peter failed. And the love of Jesus was not subject to Peter's failure. And the love of Jesus is not subject to your failure or mine or your inadequacy or mine. But because Jesus loves us, he saves us. And then his spirit comes into us and transforms us. When we share with people around us, when we go to give the greatest news in the world to other people, we need to be very careful that we are not leading with transformation first. Because I think that that's kind of what Australia might think Christians actually preach, is you've got to jump through a whole bunch of hoops and then God will be happy with you. We need to make sure that we're able to communicate really clearly You know what? God loves us first. And so because he loves us, he deals with our sin. And because he deals with our sin, he puts his spirit in us and that transforms us. When we share Jesus with people, we don't want to give them a set of rules to condition their behavior. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit takes the laws of God and writes them on the human heart. We need to leave. We need to lead rather with the love of God and with the sacrifice of Christ for sin. Some of you I know this week are going to have a go sharing your faith with other people. Some of you I know this morning, you needed to hear that for yourself, that God's love for you is not subject to performance review. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what he has already chosen to do and he has chosen to love you. Let's pray together and then we're going to sing one song and then we're going to have some morning tea together. Lord Jesus, this morning in the scriptures, again, we glimpse your perfection and it is too massive for us to understand. And that you would deal with our sin, with my sin, so that we could be near you. You would go through everything leading up to the cross, the humiliation, the shame, the debasement, the condescension, you would go through all of that because you want us to be near to you. Lord Jesus, would you please transform us out of our sinful behavior and out of our sinful thinking? You have paid such a price. Where it has got a hold of us, where it is at work in our hearts, would you weed it out and remove it? By the power of your spirit, Lord Jesus, would we know that freedom that you have come to minister into us and through us? Would we know conviction of sin and would we know the power of your spirit to release us where we are trapped? Lord Jesus, thank you that your love for us is not conditional on us not screwing things up. 
But Lord, thank you that you work with us, that you redeem us, that you minister wisdom into us. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us to give that same grace to one another, that we would love one another the way that you love us, that we would love our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and the people we meet down the street. We would love them the way you have loved us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Amen.